I see some of the calls for more, call it bureaucratic or government level intervention into markets, putting the thumb on prices. We've just gone through 10 years of what I would say is a financial put, you know, Fed financial put on markets. And it looks like more and more people are calling for a fiscal put at this point where, okay, the energy transition looks really hard. So let's just have governments do it, right? And I just don't see a time in history when that worked. I think we need to fight for markets and I think we need to have better markets to actually solve these challenges. So I think there's a bit of an ideological bent to what we're doing, but I think that's why it's so important. I just don't think we're in a, a period of, of history where we can we can outsource the hard work of markets to probably interests that don't want to see that transparency. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to our final episode of Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Josh Crum, founder and CEO of Abex Technologies. We'll be discussing his vision for building smarter markets, and why the future of smarter markets begins with launching a futures exchange and clearinghouse in Singapore. Hello, Josh. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hey, Dave. It's great to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us. I really do appreciate you taking time away from building the Smarter Markets vision to come here and talk with us about it. I should let any of our investors who are listening know that, of course, this isn't the place for updates on the progress of ABEX Exchange and Clearinghouse, which is nearing launch in Singapore, but those will be provided through other more appropriate channels. But with the launch of the Exchange and Clearinghouse nearing, I do think it's a great time to talk with you about the important lessons that you've taken from market history, how those lessons have shaped and influenced you and your work in building market infrastructure like you're doing within ABEX. And I'd like to begin with asking you a question that uh, I've kind of wondered myself for quite a while, and that's about when you became interested in building market infrastructure. You're a mining engineer by training, and you began your career in the mining industry. So what in that experience first led you to develop such an interest in commodities futures markets and their infrastructure? Thanks, Dave. Yeah, well, I guess I, I probably don't have the academic background as, as someone of, <laughs> like yourself from the Chicago School and in, in, in economics. But you know, I, I did take a mineral economics uh, master's at the Colorado School of Mines as well. So I'd say I had a, a decent theoretical underpinning. But I would actually say that the place that it really started to click for me is you know it's always those real world experiences and understanding how how these things really work. You know, not in the supply demand charts, but you know what what's actually happening when physical liquidity from a from a mining company companies say, you know, hedging on the, in the futures curve, how, how we utilize these markets. So for me, I, I really got to know that piece of it back in 2007, working for a mining company and, and 2008, going into the financial crisis, we actually had to restructure some debt based on some of the liquidity provisions of rapidly changing commodity prices. And, you know, as part of the syndicate of lenders, four lenders, you know, basically were given hedging programs that we had to, we had to execute. And in many ways, it was almost a sort of a captive transaction. 
And I do remember working with one particular European bank and, you know, they were quoting us prices, you know, 10, 15% off the market. And there really wasn't anything to do with it. And I just, I just remember just thinking how inefficient the whole structure must be and, and why, you know, why we were in that situation and just thinking how hard the, you know, at, at the time, you know, operating a mine in Portugal and how hard, you know, it actually is to get that metal out of the ground and the risks. And, and so to me, like everything, I just had to understand the system and, and understand a way to, way to do it better. Why can't there be more liquidity, more direct access? You know, why, why were we in that situation? So I would say that was the first sort of, sort of visceral understanding of how, how these markets actually work and why. But, you know, I, I think a lot has changed, of course, since then, you know, both both in the industry, regulatory, the knowledge of, uh, of commodity hedging, you know, more broadly. So, you know, I think a lot has advanced. But, you know, that, that was definitely the time that I, I really started to think, you know, is there a way to, to do these markets better? Yeah, I would imagine a 10 to 15% inefficiency is something that would really get under the skin when you kind of look at the margins that are available in many projects. That's an awful big shift off the curve. I'm curious, you said that was around the 2007-2008 time period. Was that related to some of the the crises of that era? Or was, you know, as you delved into that, was it a, a more structural problem in those markets? I mean, I, I think it would probably was more around around financing, cost of capital, liquidity. I mean, I remember, you know, you and I both worked for Goldman. I remember having a an interesting meeting, and it wasn't, you know, again, I don't want to name names. This wasn't a, a Goldman hedging program or anything, but I do remember, you know, having meetings in that 2008 time period where, where even as a relatively small cap mining company, you know, questioning the the counterparty risk of a JR and or some of the banks at that time. So, so there was certainly a lot going on in credit markets that that wasn't necessarily the inefficiency of the market. But at the same time, again, it's about data transparency and access to markets. I mean, we see that even in the precious metals markets and some of the work that ABEX has been doing, where if there's anything that should be well-evolved and, and frictionless at this point, it's the gold market. I mean, how long have we had gold markets? About the, the simplest commodity you can deal with. But at the same time, even that market, it's not everybody that can access the center of the market. There's still so many different layers of risk and counterparties, and not everybody has access to you know, clearing physical markets, for instance. So I, I think that, again, the, the supply and demand charts in textbooks, that's not really how markets actually function when you get down to the incentives and the infrastructure of markets. Yeah. And one thing you've always said that that's always you know stuck with me is that when you look at how markets develop, how they grow, how hopefully they become more efficient and more transparent over time, that the growth and historical development of information technology and markets has always been intertwined and interdependent in a certain way that new information technologies enable innovation in the way we structure our markets and the commercial needs of markets push forward the development of new technologies. And this probably goes back to the invention of the telegraph and before. So I was curious, you know, in your own view, how important has this dynamic been historically and how important do you think it is now? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the information technology is everything, you know, as, as you know, you know, the price signals are really about data and messaging and how many messages can you process at one time, uh, which is, you know, ultimately gets your both your information liquidity as well as your your transaction liquidity as more information you know lowers lowers marginal transaction costs so i think you can't ever separate you know information technology and the innovations happening there you know with the innovations in in markets and so i mean even going back to 
you know, something as simple as the spreadsheet or email, you know, what did that do to change, you know, derivative markets and very complex calculations? You know, would, would we have the same markets if those were all being done by hand? So, you know, not only the connectivity to, say, a central limit order book, but just the way we process information to manage risk, it's like anything. You know, look at your car engine from 30 years ago and how simple it is compared to the complexity of a modern engine. I think most of our engineering systems go through that that level of refinement and, and risk management is, is no different. So absolutely, I think they're always intertwined. But what I would say, what Abex thinks a lot about in, in that technological innovation, you know, again, there's there's two pieces, you know, call it the the front end and the central limit or order book. Obviously, with high frequency trading and moving away, you know, I think a lot of the former guests talked about probably one of the most memorable parts of, of many people's careers was that shift from the open outcry floor trading and very local markets to being very international, you know, moving at the fractions of milliseconds. So, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of ground covered in, in those types of in innovations on essentially, you know, bulk messaging of, of data and transactions on the front end. But what, what I would say, particularly in the commodity market, you look at is not a lot has changed in many ways on the back end. The way we actually move collateral, uh, move settlement, you know, I think the risk analysis is, is certainly always progressing with information technology. But the actual settlement and clearing side of things and collateral side of things, I think there's still a lot of innovation to be had there. And as innovation advances in, in that area, so you really do get to, you know, near real-time risk management and settlement finality, I think everything can change again. So, you know, as as you know, there's kind of three themes on on why, you know, our 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 team formed at Abex, you know, around bringing back markets to be more physical, you know, the increasing shift to Asia, and the third piece is is the technology side particularly on the back end in collateral and and, and margining and risk management. I, I think there's a lot of innovation still to be done there. Yeah, and before we dive into some of those technology issues, I'd love to ask because you know you're building Abex Exchange and Clearinghouse on a next generation technology platform. You're doing it in Asia, in Singapore, but in many ways it's a traditional fully regulated commodity futures exchange and clearinghouse like people would be accustomed to seeing, you know, like a CME, like an ICE. So I was curious, why is building a traditional futures exchange and clearinghouse foundational to building out the rest of your smarter markets vision? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and, and and again, we always have these these two sides of kind of the tried and true, tested way of, of building benchmarks and, and building particularly commodity markets, and then the the other piece is the pole of innovation. But again, where I, I think this is is leading is that in many ways, I might even make a little bit of a provocative statement that some of our financialization and the growth that we've seen in the derivative industry really over the last probably you know, 30 years uh, at least, and maybe some of the hyper growth over the last 20 years, may be leveling out a bit in the amount of and the types of derivatives being traded as we've got more and more financialized in these markets. And what again, what I think it's missing, you know, the real risk management for what the real risks are today, looking at the energy transition, climate change, geopolitics, the, the realignment of, of supply chains, and you know, moving from just-in-time supply chains to just-in-case supply chains, all of that has a has a very important risk management tool in the actual physical goods that are moving in our economy, not just the financial flows that are moving in the economy. And some of the previous guests were talking about some great points on how 
how the market moving from the out, open outcry, some of the some of the regulatory changes that happened in the 2000s, it led to a significant internationalization of these exchanges, where 30, 40% of your volumes uh, may be from overseas. And, you know, not only just local in the pit, but not even local in, in the region or, or the country where these exchanges operate. So we, we've seen this explosion in innovation and in internationalization of liquidity. But at the end of the day, you know, a commodity needs to be produced and needs to be stored and it needs to be transported before it, it can be uh, consumed. So you don't have that, that same level of high-speed innovation of, of moving bits as moving atoms. So we think that this back to the futures approach is all about doing the things that are important in, in price discovery and liquidity of physical markets, physical supply chains, particularly as they get stressed and, and challenged, but then you know, bringing the most information to market as possible to create the best markets. Yeah, that's, it's, I find it fascinating the, putting that in the context of the interdependence of the market and the technology, because it feels like almost sometimes we get lost in the technology and we forget the market. I know sometimes I've heard you remark like certain markets, I won't say which, kind of become an abstraction of an abstraction. And I can hear the engineer in you coming out, you know, kind of getting back to the physical piece. So I'm curious, when you look out at today's commodity markets, what do you see as the big commercial need that's out there that you're trying to address? Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I think it is, it's fundamentally that that price discovery. We've just spent the last few days at, at a I think every three years, there's a global LNG conference that's held. So uh, LNG 2023 in, in Vancouver. And I think three or four of the first five panels, people talked about what is the price of LNG? You know, no, nobody knew. How is it that such a geopolitically important, you know, literally, um, you know, keeping you know, European lights on in the winter last year. I mean, I think the physical supply chain industry did an amazing, amazing job of diverting those flows to Europe in a crisis last year. So as much as these, particularly the, you know, the international energy companies have been kind of made the, made the villain in the energy transition, ultimately they did an amazing job of, of sort of getting ahead of the crisis and, and diverting supplies but that said, you know, as as we know, kind of in the the engine room of all all that was happening during that time, there were some incredible risks that were happening in in the volatility and the prices of of the gas markets and you know multi billion dollar margin calls happening, you know shipments that didn't happen because they couldn't get insured, they couldn't hedge. So as as much as the industry did a great job of of averting a crisis, you could see around the edges the financial side of that. Every physical supply chain going one one direction is a financial supply chain going in the other direction. And I, I, I would say that the physical supply chain did better than the financial supply chain in that example, which again just just proves out the model that you know we need to always be innovating on the you know the financial infrastructure as well. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. What does the commercial market, that physical market that kept things running, kept the lights on in Europe last year, what does it need? from some of our technologies? Or is it not really a technological answer? Is it a tried and true traditional answer that we need benchmark commodity futures contracts? Or is it both? Well, I, I think it's I think it's a traditional answer, but it's really the market coordination issue, right? There's there's no no one party can have a silver bullet here. <laughs> you know, it's you know, even the work that we've done around, you know, our LNG contract specs that took four years and and hundreds of firms and many, many of their legal teams reviewing the specs. Can we really have convergence? Is this the right market structure? And that's just the contract. And then you get into the actual infrastructure of, of all that needs to happen, the flow of funds, the settlement, the regulatory, 
Again, one person can't come forward with a solution. It's a coordinated infrastructure. You know, you can't build an interchange without actually connecting the existing roads. And so that's a big part of the job that I think sometimes gets under-recognized when people are looking for quick solutions, is that the market coordination problem is probably more challenging than the surface level solution. And I was curious because in the past, you've built other market infrastructure companies. Um, You know, gold money is one that comes to mind. And I'm curious, what did you learn in some of those earlier efforts that are reflected in what you're doing now with ABEX? And what did you have to learn the hard way along the way while building ABEX? (laughs) Absolutely. So I I think the first thing that we recognized is... uh, you know, we had some pretty great software, you know, very, very quickly. And the amount of t- work we had to spend on on legal and regulatory versus the software was just o- orders of magnitude, right? So again, you know, it, it's more than just the software. It's, it's how you actually operate with trust in these, in these markets. And so specifically looking back at, at what we were trying to achieve and, and, and what the team was doing at, at well, it was actually uh, called BitGold before we acquired the gold money business. Really, the the piece that we were looking at is the physical settlement of of gold and how you actually create a market around uh, vaulted gold kind of in the back end. So although the business kind of went in a very retail-oriented direction over time, you know, we really built infrastructure that could have been scaled to to met, you know, much, much bigger institutional players, but the business chose to go down a more of a retail where the, the innovation in the back end allowed you to have, you know, lower pricing, tighter spreads to the customers on the front end, but it all started with that, that infrastructure uh, innovation. And, and, you know, even I, I think we originally wrote the first patents on some of the blockchain based settlement of, of a physical commodity back in like 2013. So I think I'm uh yeah, I, th- I think I've just passed the 10 year mark of, of being in that the back end, you know, trying to look at better ways of physical settlement again, and all of the, the physical, the information, uh, the legal and the regulatory uh, ways to do that. And do you see some of those that that work in the back end, that technology, do you see a strong need for that in the broader commodity futures markets? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as, as, as I mentioned before, a physical supply chain, global supply chain these days is a financial, you know, supply chain going, going the opposite direction. And, you know, with, if you look at even the, the collateral that's being used in the clearing houses globally, you know, I think there's somewhere around a half a trillion in initial margin uh, posted on the various global clearing houses. About 40% of those assets are, are U.S. government securities and bonds. So we still have, you know, we, you know, the, the market is still very much a, very global, uh, but very reliant on one particular market functioning well, and that's the U.S. Treasury market. And you know, I don't want to necessarily get down any rabbit holes here, but of course, there's been a lot of talk, you know, the last few years, particularly in Asia, of trying to get away from, you know, that over reliance on on U.S. Treasury markets as the reserve assets for global finance and commodity trade in particular. So I, I do think there's a lot more innovation to be able to actually use these physical commodities and have a you know a proper offset of your hedge. So so if you think about it in the in the US Treasury market, you know, your collateral as treasury is perfectly hedged with your basis hedging on your futures, where you know they're both essentially financial and immediately converge. But in a commodity supply chain, it's it's very, very different, right? Take that LNG cargo we were talking about, you know, trying to get financed into theoretically sky high gas prices in Europe, but couldn't get financing for that shipment because you know what is actually happening. First, that LNG cargo is likely going to get you know repo financed, and you know, and then you you then you have to post you know again you know U.S. government securities as collateral to a hedge 
uh, and you've always got a number of financial players sitting between the physical long and the financial short. And we think that there, that there needs to be better ways and, and more efficient ways to do that, particularly in Asia, when you're you know, increasingly trading Asian-based commodities uh, on the supply side for the demand side, and yet you've got this somewhat messy global financial system sitting in between to make that happen. So again, I think there's a lot of innovation that can happen there around you know, being able to properly pledge a bill of lading or use your actual underlying physical cargo as collateral in these, uh, in these trades. And going from one potentially messy system like collateral to another potentially messy system is, of course, we've talked on this podcast a lot about the energy transition and trying to get investment into greener ways of producing the copper, the nickel, the battery metals that we'll need to affect that energy transition. Do you see that creating a pressing need for technology as well that need to be able to distinguish commodities. It's almost like a decommoditization of commodities that, you know, those that are produced in a, a more environmentally responsible way can be priced differently from those that aren't. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a challenge that certainly needs to be overcome. As I've, I've said, probably in some other, other venues, this next commodity investment cycle, we need to avoid the race to the bottom. Naturally, the way that a buyer and seller of last resort, you know, the type of benchmarks that we create works is, is the cheapest to deliver mechanism. And a lot of your more premium products, whether it's location or grade, are always uh, generally separated out by, by some sort of basis in the physical, physical market. So I'm not saying that we need to totally throw out the you know, cheapest to deliver benchmark you know, type market. I think that's still very important. But what we do need to do to allow that, that basis to widen on better, cleaner projects is certainly we just need more data. We need more information. Uh, we need more information at the point of, you know, say, in the exchange for physical process in a commodity futures exchange where you actually you know, close out your futures position rather than going into the delivery window and you exchange your position for a bilateral physical trade. We believe that a lot more data should happen in that transaction so that the supply chain can constantly discover you know, what are those differentials? What does a cleaner mine get paid a premium for? You know, Because right now that you know, there's so many layers of this complex global supply chain that that data gets lost very quickly. And again, academically, looking top down, theoretically, you can you can try to sort out some of these problems. But in the real world, where you take, say, a copper concentrate with many metals that are both byproduct credits and penalties that actually can't go to a smelter before being blended with another copper concentrate. And then once in the smelter, you know, you don't, these aren't, you know, small batch, you know, microbrewery style brewings, you know, you know, this is, you know, you've got to throw everything in there, some scrap, everything to, you know, keep these smelters full and keep them running. So it's not so easy to trace, you know, the original, original place. And then, then you get to the refining and the wire rod manufacturing. And, you know, by the time you're in a, you know, an electric vehicle or an electrical component, you know, there is, it's, it's very hard to say batch process all the way from a mine. So there's a lot of data. There's got to be a lot of systems of, of passing that data through the supply chain. And that's, you know, again, some of the things that we're working on on the, on the longer horizon. But first, it's getting the data to the market. You know, I think some other, other solutions, more people can come up with some interesting solutions for pricing this. But first, you have to have the data. I'm hearing something in, in some of your remarks. I want to ask you about it because you know you, you made the comment going back to Bitgold that the technology was kind of the easier part. I won't say anything's easy, but the the regulatory, that coordination, the legal, that was harder at that time. And 
you know, I'm kind of realizing a lot of what you're you're doing is trying to make better coordination within markets. And first that requires coordination of building a company. And I'm curious, you know, when you look at the establishing that coordination, is that often the harder part than the technology piece? Because I think we often focus on the technology bits and say like, oh, that's innovative. But from your experience as an entrepreneur and a company builder, where do you think the real effort goes in? All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) None of it is easy, uh, Dave, you know, and, but I think, again, taking that engineering first principles approach to things, you know, first you have to identify the problem, right? You've got to lay out, you know, everything on the table and, and understand where, where are the bottlenecks again, whether it's competitive reasons and, and commercial realities that become the, the challenge. Is there a lack of interest in coordinating? Is there a lack of interest in transparency? I'd say oftentimes, yes, that, that becomes the, the, the bigger challenge. You know, the, again, there's a theoretical world where you know, all of this data is, is open and becomes a public good. That's the, call it the positive externality of markets uh, and, and liquidity, is that uh, open information and lowering marginal transaction costs. But you know, there's, there's a lot of education that's needed. There's a lot of open sourcing of ideas and refining and, and trying to find problems within a community. Of course, that's a, you know, a big reason, as we've talked about before, it's a big reason why we do the podcast as well, is to you know, lift the hood a little bit on this complex engine and, and bring, bring more ideas and, and bring more collaborators to, to the market. So that's, you know, that's been a big piece, right? There's the market coordination side on the commercial side. There's the market education side that we do with Smarter Markets. And then there's, you know, the, the, of course, the actual operating and development work that we do. And yeah, the, the software piece, the, uh, they're, they're all complex. Well, and one thing we've been trying to do in this series uh, that thank you for coming on to, to wrap it up in our final episode is to look back at the history of commodity futures markets and exchanges and try to see what lessons stand out. So we neither have to reinvent the wheel or repeat the mistakes of the past. And it's been fascinating to me how many how many things seem to happen over and over again and how like nothing's really new, but it's a, you know, when you hear from people who are in the markets like Michael Marx in the late seventies and eighties, you hear echoes of that uh, across, you know, what we hear today. And so I was curious, you know, if there were certain lessons or dynamics that happen in commodity futures markets that stood out to you and you said, ah, that's one that I want to work on. Yeah, well, I, I think I think the nickel market is is definitely one of them. You know, I was w- working with you uh, back in Goldman in, in what was it, uh, 2010, kind of the last time we had a bit of a hiccup in the in the nickel market. And I always, you know, identified that that you know this is this is a market that needs more work, particularly as we as we shift, you know, very different markets. The the amazing innovations that have happened in the pig iron and ferro nickel space in stainless steel being very, very different than, than what's happening in batteries and highly refined nickel products. So in many ways, you know, it has the same underlying element you know, somewhere in the raw material, but these are completely different supply chains in, in many ways. And we've seen you know, some of our 
you know, some of the, the trading firms and, and clients that we're close to saying things like, you know, the existing nickel markets are not fit for purpose. So, you know, you know, the nickel one is, is, is one that's always, always drawn me in to, you know, believing that there should be other better solutions. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, some of the stories of the the old potato market, which uh, which you mentioned was was very similar, right? You know, you had Idaho potatoes that couldn't be delivered into a main potato contract. That sounds awfully similar to what, what just happened in the nickel market. So I think always trying to think ahead and having, again, the best information, the best people at the table that can identify those and work out those risks in the system. Yeah, I thought that was a great parallel. Like I hadn't really thought through that potato contract issue in the late 70s, but to realize when Michael started talking about it, it was like, oh my gosh, this sounds exactly like what happened with the LME. And in some case, you know, I think we often think of financial markets as being these big centers of innovation, but to a certain extent, you made me think of this when you brought up pig iron, you know, the the physical markets have actually been innovating very quickly and going from you know, the traditional nickel market that was centered around nickel that was primarily used for stainless steel to a nickel market that's being primary source of demand growth will be for batteries. And as those innovations occur in those physical markets, our financial markets aren't always keeping up and that has real consequences. And I wonder, is you think that's something broader than just the nickel market or is that a dynamic that you see more broadly? I think it is a, bro- a dynamic that we see more broadly. I, I think some of the the rigor and, and sitting sitting with the physical commodity traders and understanding how they how they do business and and what tools they need, I do feel like maybe it was just a, a you know a lack of commodity cycle for the last decade where the big exchange groups you know probably put a little bit less less focus on on some of these challenges. Maybe, you know maybe we have a bias you know, given that Abex really is a team of of commodity focused you know executives where we're you know kind of hyper focused on on these specific challenges. But I do I do think that there's been some you know the, the touch with the physical market has been lost a bit in in financial markets. And I think that's a broader trend that again we we hope to you know we hope to reverse and you know again like thinking about the period we are in in the you know the time of our our global geopolitics. I mean, we're we're at a very scary and, and dangerous time right now. And you know, the one thing that we that we all share is is, is these you know the shared planet and these these natural resources. And so even the the talk of you know multiple financial systems and currency zones you know splitting or fracturing you know at the end of the day they're all still going to need that those underlying physical commodities and absolutely excellent conversation you had on the last episode talking about the connectivity we build between you know between cities and between people that add a lot more dynamic complexity than than just the nation state as a whole and that you know we typically don't unwind these information supply chains or physical supply chains. So how do we, you know, how do we use the market and how do the, how do we, how do we keep people, you know, coordinated and, and focused on, uh, on the best coordination? And I, I think the physical market is going to be key to that. If financial markets fractured in different ways, at the end of the day, you know, the convergence is still going to happen in the physical markets where we supply, we share these supply chains for the foreseeable future. So uh, again, I think that's another reason why why the market right now needs to be focused on the most efficient physical supply chains. So you know, we don't we don't end up in war. Yeah, and you're you're reminding me of you knowing we both worked at Goldman in the two thousands. Uh, and you were doing the metals research and I was doing the energies research. And of course, one of the big topics which you brought up was when there was the trouble with the LME aluminum warehouses and the the problems of getting delivery due to delivery into the warehouse mechanisms at the time. And you know, I've often heard you say that what many of these physical markets need is a a buyer of last resort. 
or a seller of last resort. And I wonder if you could like just expand on that notion a little bit, because I feel like it is a bit in your DNA of connecting the physical markets to the financial markets, which is so important, as you've said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, again, it comes back to to data and transparency. Just think about, you know, any day you 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 have a key key item that needs to be procured that's slowing up a whole project, right? Like in, in many times it's not about the price, but it's about the actual availability and quantity that matters. And we saw this in the, you know, in the LNG market as well last year, right? So a lot of those LNG cargoes that were diverted towards Europe, it solved some of Europe's needs, but it ended up, you know, really challenging, you know, places like India and Pakistan and some of the deliveries they were expecting. So, you know, ultimately having that buyer and seller of last resort where you can go into an open, transparent market and buy the price and, and the physical price will always clear and then take delivery. Then you, you're able to have a, a transparent mechanism to secure that supply when sometimes the quantity becomes more important than the price. And so that's that's where I think the over-focus on abstraction and you know this zero-sum betting of a futures product, you know, because ultimately that's what futures products are. They become zero-sum at the end uh, from a price perspective. But from a quantity perspective, we still need these transparent parent markets to, to make or take delivery. You know, one of the other things that came up in the series a lot, it came to mind when you brought up, you know, can't get stuck in the abstractions is even going, going all the way back to John Lothian when, you know, he would say the markets are about people. You have to keep in mind the people that built the markets. And I think it's a great time to ask you, you know, you've been building the exchange and clearinghouse for ABEX over the past four years, I would say. And as it's getting nearing to launch, what did you learn about the people? Because you spent four years building a community, building an ecosystem of potential trading participants, of corporations who would want to turn to an exchange to manage risk, of dealing with clearing members who are essential to operating an exchange and clearinghouse and connecting it, to just the getting all the, the right aspects with regulators and legal and all those aspects that have to come together in an ecosystem to make this work. What have you kind of learned about the people and getting all those people together into a healthy ecosystem? It's a great question because you know that's that you know that's why we do this work. I, I know you share that as, as well. And one thing I, I would say is I think the closer you get to those complex physical challenges, the more you see a very shared vision on you know people want to solve these challenges. There is very much a we can solve it culture in the physical industries. Many of the big energy companies again that get demonized. Are very much engineering cultures. You know, they 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 build and and achieve miracles on a scale that we don't get to see every day. And when it comes to things like the war in Ukraine and some of the geopolitics, what I've seen is you know the physical commodity industry really is a an industry of of diplomats and peacemakers that want to see you know want to see things function right for you know for all of humanity. So again, I, I think that's the other problem when sometimes you get lost in the abstraction is is the people that have the information that know. You know, I you know I I lived and traveled around Russia. I spent a lot of time in in you know far flung places. And you know, having that culture, a lot of times in the mining industry, we say that if only we could have uh, more more geologists, you know, be be the diplomats, you know, because they're really the first ones, you know, in the field <laughs> making local relationships. So again, I think we are headed into a decade where we really need to listen to the people that that are involved in these these very complex supply chains. And believe me, none of them I've talked to wants to go to war. I think they want to solve these problems. And again, market and bringing the best information to market is how we do that. 
Well, I feel like I should stop on that very positive vision, but I won't. Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, one of the other lessons that stood out to me in in having all these conversations in this podcast series was that most people don't care about market infrastructure until it breaks. You know, I think Andy Holm put it as nobody cares about the plumbing until it breaks. And then you care a lot. (laughs) Obviously, you're not one of those people. You care a lot about market infrastructure before it breaks, and you've often been the person warning that it's going to break unless we do something. So I think in, in terms of your history, we've learned a little bit about you know why you care about it. But maybe just in your own words, why do you care so much about market infrastructure? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Yeah, I, I, again, I think it goes back to those experiences, right? You know, living in those communities internationally, you know, working with those miners on on at the face of the mine that I thought got cheated in the, the financial abstraction part of the market. And and to me, you know, I, I think it is uh, it is about that global connectivity. And look, you know, we are, again we're we're moving into a to a period where you know even in the exchange landscape, we went from very, you know, very local from, you know, literally a, a, a curb trading on a, on a block in, you know, New York City or Amsterdam to a period of big national exchanges and very jurisdictional exchanges. And now as, and, you know, as the SIBO folks were talking about, you know, we're, we're completely into a, a more globalized uh, exchange. And so, so for me, it is, it is that globalization and that global connectivity is what matters most. And yeah, you know, as, as I was saying in the last question, I see some of the blockages. I see some of the calls for more, call it bureaucratic or, or government level intervention into markets, putting the thumb on prices. We've just gone through 10 years of what I would say is a financial put, you know, Fed financial put on markets. And it looks like more and more people are calling for a fiscal put at this point where, okay, the energy transition looks really hard. So let's just have governments do it, right? And I just don't see a time in history when that worked. I think we need to fight for markets and I think we need to have better markets to actually solve these challenges. So I think there's a bit of an ideological bent to what we're doing, but I think that's why it's so important. I just don't think we're in a, a period of, of history where we can we can outsource the hard work of markets to probably interests that don't want to see that transparency. Thanks again to Josh Crum, founder and CEO of Abex Technologies. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This concludes our series on the days of futures past. We'll be back next week with our 2023 summer playlist. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by Abex Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. 
Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.